Lord, we come to you now. We thank you for this glorious day you have given to us. Lord, we are your humble servants who, did, who do not deserve your grace or your love. But Lord, we do thank you for the powerful work you have done in all of our hearts to call us to be your children, that you call us sons and daughters. You know us by name. And Lord, guide us in our study as we look into biblical friendship as a means of grace that you use this to sanctify us with one another, to better love one another, to better glorify you, and to honor you, and to serve you, and to serve others. Lord, we pray just for my own heart that you would calm my heart, give me clarity of mind and clarity of speech, that we all may be subjected to your word, that we may learn more about you, about one another and ourselves, and how we can continue to grow and to do better to strive more in serving you. Thank you for this time, and it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, so it is part two, biblical friendship. Now, in discipleship, you remember, I did touch quickly, very quickly on friendship and how I made the point that discipleship is not merely friendship. And because of that, Pastor Jeff asked me, If I can expound a little bit more on what true biblical friendship is. That is my goal. We'll see what happens. It was a busy two weeks. The Lord was sovereign in the control that this past weekend I lost a dear friend of mine who was my mentor. He's the one who actually introduced Melissa and I to CFBC. So spending the weekend reflecting on a deep friendship and writing about friendship, the Lord was good in that. It was interesting, it was hard at times, but the Lord was faithful nonetheless. So, friendship. Have you ever found yourself wondering why having good friends is so hard? Why is it so hard that I don't have friends? Why is it hard for me to make friends? What is the reason I don't have more friends? Maybe you said, I feel lonely all the time. I just don't have any friends. I don't know how to make friends. Now, I'm sure at some point in your life, I know in my life, I have said those things. I have thought those things and asked those questions to others. Why don't I have more friends? And if you're finding yourself saying those things, even today, I pray that you will hear, what you will hear today will encourage your heart. That will encourage you to seek Christ's body. That you will be able to have deep friendships yourself. That ultimately your eyes will be turned off of your present circumstances. And your eyes will be turned and fixated upon the Lord. As I said earlier, Jeff asked me to teach about friendship. As I have pondered this topic, I've realized I have never heard or sat under or read about true biblical friendship. Sure. I've heard about the topic. I sat through a psychology class in college, like most of us have. Being told that your spouse should be your closest friend. We all understand that. Then there are endless videos on YouTube. There are endless little snippets on social media talking about, this is how you can make five new friends by Saturday night. We've all seen those things. But after spending nearly 13 years in Bible college and in seminary, which is a really long time. I don't recommend taking that long of a course. But 13 years nonetheless, there's not one focused time on teaching, on cultivating 
true biblical friendship. And that saddens my heart. Why does it sadden my heart? Glad you asked. It's because true friendship is enkindled by a spark from heaven. And our best friends are those whose company makes us afraid to sin. We're going to unpack that as we go. But never being told that through Bible college, through seminary, I missed out on a lot. I don't want you to miss on that either. Because friendship serves a major role in our sanctification. Remember, we are not sanctified in a bubble. All by ourselves. Rather, we are being sanctified while being surrounded by the people of God in a local church. We're not alone. Since we are part of a local church, of this local church, we're made up of baptized believers. There ought to be a profound joy in our hearts that we want to share with one another. And with that being said, we're going to do a little exercise. It's going to seem strange. It's going to feel different. And it's going to feel odd. So just bear with me with this one. So I've got to set the stage for this exercise. As you know, we have two catechism classes. We have an older class. We have a younger class. I have the privilege of teaching those kids and loving it, being challenged by them. But yeah, in that time, I've noticed there is a marked difference between the two age groups. The young ones love to be loud. They love to shout. They love to shout their answers with a smile on their face. That's, that's great. It's amazing watching that. But the older kids, the older kids, oh, they're much, much quieter. They will say their answers just loud enough to be heard. The smiles are a little less. Don't get me wrong. They love to be loud. They love to smile. They just smile at different things. They're loud at different things as they've gotten older. So with that, older kids are quiet, more reserved. Young kids who are exuberant, full of joy, have a little exercise together. We're going to answer a catechism question together. And don't worry, it's not on eschatology like the kids are doing today. We're going to do question number one. The question is, who made you? The answer is God. Pretty straightforward, pretty easy. We can do this together. Now, when I ask you that question, answer it like you normally would. If I was to ask you, who made you? God. God made you. Now, you're six years old, seven, maybe eight years old. You are finding out that God made you, that you are precious in his eyes. And that excites, excites you. You want to shout it. Now, when I say, who made you? God. God made you. Did you notice the difference? Did you smile a little bit more? A little more warmth in the heart? Hope you did. So that is the difference. That there is a profound joy in our hearts when we are talking about God. That joy needs to be there when we're sharing about God to one another. Sharing about God, reading about God, praying to God with one another is the very foundational aspect of friendship. True biblical friendship starts with God. Said another way, genuine friendship must begin in Christ, continue in Christ, 
and be perfected in Christ. Now, this little book by Joel Beakey and Michael Haken, they wrote, Friendship is one of the primary means God uses to strengthen his people. Notice the author and the employer of friendship is not us. It is God. He's the one who develops friendship. He's the one who uses friendship. Friendship is a means of grace given by God to his people. Supreme friendship is reflected in God himself. And the amazing love that does exist in the Godhead, in the Trinity. They also write, friendship involves mutual love and the knitting together of souls. Friendship is the mutual love and the knitting together of souls. Said another way, is that a friend is a companion of one's innermost thoughts and feelings. For many of us here today, this should be our spouse. Our hearts and our minds ought to be an open book to them. Because exposing ourselves so openly requires great mutual trust that must be rooted and grounded in Christ alone. This level of closeness that you should have with your spouse is exceedingly rare in friendships. It's so rare, in fact, that outside of marriage, we should be thankful to have one such friend and count ourselves greatly blessed if we have three to five in a lifetime. I said earlier, we are not in a bubble, excluded from others, nor excluding others. Rather, we are part of the body of Christ. The love that God has within the Godhead, the love that was shown to us by Christ, we are to show to others. All that by way of introduction. We need to look at some practical matters talking about friendship. How do we do it? How do we make friends? How do we cultivate biblical friendships? Now, in my amazing, profound outline, that is not. It's rather simple. First, we're going to be looking at Paul's works of the flesh and an example of what that relationship looks like. Then the fruit of the Spirit and a friendship built upon that. Those are our two big points. And then at the end, we're going to look at some very practical steps that we can all take together that we can grow in our friendships with one another. So with that, open your Bibles to the book of Galatians in chapter 5. It's Galatians chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 17. And I'm going to read through verse 21. Galatians 5, 17. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, Decisions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, 
joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And against such things, there is no law. I went a little further because I just love that fruit of the Spirit. We have to have that in our minds the whole time we're looking at this. So, in the works of the flesh that Paul has given us, I want to highlight a few of these things. Even with this list that Paul gives, this extensive list of many sins, it is not exhaustive. It is not exhaustive. Nor should we be mistaken that everyone who does not know Jesus as their Lord practices all these things. You and I can both think of many people who do not know the Lord, that we can say, yeah, pretty sure they don't involve themselves with origins. But they might be drunkards. They might have fits of anger. Because the works of the flesh is evident in all of us. Not just those who don't know the Lord. We still battle against the flesh, do we not? In this list, there are four works that I really want to study in today. Which pertain to human relationships. And those being enmity, strife, jealousy, and then fits of anger. All these are really forms of anger. We can agree to that. We also know that a pattern is normally followed with emotions. That is, someone has enmity towards a particular person. And then over the course of time, whether that time is short or long, they will move through the other three, eventually landing on fits of anger towards the other person. So they progress through those four. Now, before we look at an example in the scriptures about such a man, I do want to point something out. You notice I didn't include idolatry in that list. Paul listed it, but I didn't focus on it. Because idolatry is what? It's the worship of anything else besides the Lord Jesus. This could be true, the true idolatrous act of carving something and bowing down and worshiping that. But it could be anything else under the sun. It could be food. It could be work, family, relationships, money, sex. The list goes on and on. It's anything other than Christ. And I would argue that the works of the flesh are rooted in the idolatrous worship of self. We see this as self-evident in many different examples in life. I'm going to borrow an example from Paul Tripp. That demonstrates the worship of self. The story is about you and a bagel. So you come home from work one day. Come in, put your keys down. You look on the counter. There's a bagel. Perfect, perfectly round. It's nice and toasted. It's soft. You're like, oh, that bagel. Mmm, I want that bagel. You start thinking about it. You go, I can wake up in the morning. You toast it, put some butter on it, have a cup of coffee, and out the door, boom. Have work on time, maybe early, get some extra work done. You are excited. You go to bed thinking and dreaming of that nice, warm bagel in the morning. But when you get up, you're thinking about that bagel. Combing your hair, brushing your teeth, shaving, whatever it might be. Bagel, bagel, bagel. You are ready for your bagel. Go downstairs. Bagel, it's gone. Someone took your bagel. 
There's enmity in your heart towards your family as you yell out, Who ate my bagel? Enmity turns to strife as you start to interrogate the suspects within your house. Did you eat my bagel? Then, you see your sweet, beautiful wife brushing crumbs off of her blouse. Jealousy boils up. How could she do such a thing? That was my bagel. I needed that bagel. Then anger bursts forth from your heart. As you point at your wife. You. Maybe that doesn't happen in your house. Maybe not over a bagel. Maybe it's not that extreme. But we know the truth of that. We know how quickly it's easy to go from enmity to anger towards the people we love the most. In this story, who's being worshipped? Is it the Lord Jesus Christ? Is it you? It was you. It was not the bagel. If you was thinking of that, it wasn't the bagel. That little story is married to show the idolatrous act of worshipping self. And how quickly that brings anger pretty quickly onto others. That when eyes are on self, others better watch out. They're going to feel your wrath. Maybe over a bagel. Maybe over the TV remote. Could be anything. So, with that, for our example from the Bible, there's a man I want to look at. This man deceived all that were around him, those whom he would call friends, those that called him friends. He was trusted by his friends. He was Judas Iscariot. So if you can, your Galatians go all the way back to Matthew. So Matthew chapter 10. And in Mark 3, we read about the calling of Jesus' 12 apostles. And in Matthew 10, says, And he called to them his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Even from the very beginning, we know, we see, we have insight that Judas is not who he says he is. We know this, but we must remember, the other eleven, they didn't know. They didn't know his heart. Jesus knew him perfectly, as Jesus made him, made him for that task. But the other disciples and apostles did not know who Judas really was. So with that, let's turn to John. John chapter 12. John 12, 1 through 7. We all know this story, we love this story, but let's read it afresh with the eyes of friendship. John 12, 1 through 7. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, 
where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Jesus' heart is revealed to us. On the surface, it appears that he does care for the poor. His friends thought that. They thought he cared. Yet we read, he was a thief. And he wanted the money for himself. Now, do you think Jesus' response in verse 7 says, Leave her alone. Cause any enmity or strife to flare up in Jesus' heart toward Jesus? It's possible. It is possible. You're in John 12. Let's go to John 13. John 13, 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought, because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, by what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. We see once again how the other disciples were being deceived by Judas. Again, they thought he was going out to buy something or to give away some of the money to the poor. Remember back in the list Paul gave to us in Galatians? There's more to that list than just the four we quickly looked at, the emotional range. There's also rivalries, decisions, divisions, and envy. Now, those are normally between individuals and groups. Was Judas part of Jesus' inner group? He was not. He was on the perimeter, as it were. Could those other works of the flesh be true of Judas towards the inner group? Could very well be. The friendship that Jesus had with the other disciples and Jesus was based upon the flesh and the love of the world. Jesus got what he wanted. He got money. He got his 30 pieces of silver. His eyes are so focused on getting what he wanted, that he wanted from Jesus, he did not see who Jesus truly was and what Jesus could have given him. 
Judas was with Jesus all those years in ministry, and Judas was blind the entire time. Friends, Christians, the danger is out there. There are people who want to deceive you. It is, not the, is it not the work of the devil from the very beginning? Deception is a mighty tool that the devil uses every day. And he used Judas. He deceived 11 other people for years. It is not a new trick, but we must be on guard for that. When we are seeking to build new friendships, we must be practicing wise discernment. Proverbs 1, 10 through 19 is a warning against being enticed by sinners who will succeed if you fail to embrace wisdom. Now, in this book I referenced earlier, it's called How Should We Develop Biblical Friendship? I'm going to read a small excerpt from it. And they write, Christian friendship requires discernment. You cannot assume that everyone whom you find attractive or pleasant would make a good friend. Too often people make promises of friendship and success hoping that you will help them achieve their wicked goals. But they will lead you to your death. There are people who will love you and stick with you. But others only want to get something from you. And will quickly desert you in hard times. Consider how this person treats their family and their colleagues. Why would he treat you any differently? Beware of friendships with someone given over to sin, such as anger, lest you become like him. There are times when a culture is so degenerate and the godly so rare that you must carefully guard your heart, even among associates and family members. The man or woman who fears the Lord shows kindness to others and diligently works in his or her daily calling is a friend worthy of your trust and admiration. Choose wisely whom you let into your life and into your heart. Guard your hearts, dear ones. Guard them. There is a spiritual battle raging on all around us. Be mindful of who is close to you and to your heart. A misplaced friendship can turn into a disastrous betrayal. To close on this heavy point, Beaky writes, As you strive to be a friend, you must recognize the mystery of how friendships come to pass. You cannot make someone be your faithful friend. God is the Lord of friendship. Be in prayer about all your relationships and friendships because intimate friendships with evil men will invariably have a negative effect on your lives. Now let's move into something a little more positive. Let's turn back to Galatians and let's refresh our hearts and our minds of the fruit of the Spirit. It's Galatians 5.22 But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is 
no law. While the works of the flesh have the eyes focused on self, the fruit of the Spirit has the eyes focused on the glorious Christ. Recall how Beaky said that true biblical friendship is the knitting together of souls? That can only be achieved when both people are true believers. Colossians 3, 1 through 17 has to be true of both people and that relationship. Has to be true. The former self has died and has been buried. The old has been put off and the new must have been put on. Paul repeats this theme over and over and over throughout all his writings. Christ must be first in your life so that you can properly, genuinely, biblically, Christ-honoring love others. Being controlled by the Spirit, having put on the new, ought to leave no room for selfish thoughts or motives. Thoughts of Christ and serving Him and others should be the primary thing, not the secondary. Looking at the list of the fruit, notice that love is at the beginning. That is not by mistake. Love is acting as the headwaters of all the other fruit that flow from love. I'm going to give some quick definitions of these different aspects of love. Feel free to drop them down and try to keep them tight. So love. This is self-sacrificing love. One that respects, shows devotion and affection, which leads to self-sacrificial service. Joy. It's a happiness based on unchanging divine promises and eternal spiritual realities. Joy is not the result of favorable circumstances and even occurs when those circumstances are the most painful and severe. Joy is a gift from the Lord. Peace. It's the inner calm that results from confidence in one's saving relationship with Christ. Like joy, peace is not related to one's circumstances. Patience. It's the ability to endure injuries inflicted by others and the willingness to accept irritating and painful situations. Kindness is a tender concern for others, reflected in the desire to treat others gently, just as the Lord treats all believers. Goodness is moral and spiritual excellence manifested in active kindness. Faithfulness is loyalty and trustworthiness. Gentleness is a humble and gentle attitude that is patiently submissive in every offense, while having no desire for revenge or retribution. Self-control is restraining passions and appetites. It should be of no surprise that all these attributes are true of Jesus. He was a man who sought the Father's will in all things, not his will. If we profess Christ, then this needs to be true of you and of me as well. This fruit needs to be evident in our lives. Am I saying that you must be perfect in order to be saved or to have true biblical friendships? No, definitely not. From the person who just professed Christ to the believer on their deathbed, their lives should have been marked in growth and their fruit of the Spirit. Sanctification is a lifelong journey. 
The Lord will grow you and me in different ways and in different times. In our friendships, we get to witness this growth happening and encourage them to be encouraged. We encourage our friends as we see the Lord working in their hearts. And we are calling each other to grow more and more in Christ's likeness. It should be no surprise that friendship is amazing. True biblical friendship is God-honoring. And it's something we should all want. So the question is, what does that look like? What does this true biblical friendship look like? There's one relationship I would like to look at. And that's Paul and Timothy. So Paul and Timothy. I'd like to turn to Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 and 19 through 22. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. This text highlights the best way, the dearness that Paul had for Timothy. Paul looked at Timothy as a son. Now, as mentioned earlier before we started that, this past weekend I lost a dear friend of mine. I met him in college. He's a professor of mine. And over the course of many years, this man became my father. I was his son. Melissa was his daughter. Him and his wife adopted us into their family, led us to Christ, cried with us, rejoiced with us. A lot of times we left crying, realizing I am not like Christ. But they were gentle and lowly in spirit, and they loved Jesus. They loved Jesus. And I wanted that same love they had for him, for Jesus, as I want that. So reflecting on friendship, I pray that each of you have had a friend in your life just like that. That when you look at them, you see Christ. And you want to love them. You don't want to leave their side when it's 11 o'clock at night and your baby is crying. And you're like, I want to be here for two more hours. But we must go home at times. Paul loved Timothy as a father to a son. And Paul's given this example to the church, to the Philippian church, in a time when the church is going through discord. Paul is going to send Timothy as a rock, someone steady in the Lord. The words that Paul uses here, it is clear that he is commending Timothy as an example of not like Paul, but of Christ's likeness. Timothy sincerely cares for the state of the Philippians. He is genuinely concerned about their needs as fellow believers and is not seeking to promote his own interests. And as such, he displays not the the mind of Paul, but the mind of Christ. Paul can thus describe him in verse 20 as like-minded. Because of his desire to be like Christ, Timothy fully shares Paul's heart and mind and is thus a completely is completely an agent and representative of Paul as Paul sought to be like Christ. 
we see that Paul prizes his friendship with Timothy. And we understand that it is based on a harmony of heart and of the mind. Without such harmony, there can be no intimate friendship. So that was at the beginning. Let's look at the end of Paul's life and his relationship with Timothy. So turn with, to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy three ten and 11. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and at Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Paul's commending Timothy. Paul is at the end of his life. He knows death is near. He knows it's coming. Paul's reflecting on their friendship and all their ministry work together. Paul's friendship with Timothy was so strong that when he mentions his death, he urges his friend to do your best to come to me soon in 2 Timothy 4.9 and again in 4.21. Paul dearly, dearly wants to see his friend before he goes to meet the Lord. Paul's longing to see his friend does not mean that he feared somehow that his friendship with Timothy would not be renewed in heaven. He would certainly have agreed with an observation made by Esther Edwards Burr, the daughter of Jonathan Edwards, when she writes, True friendship is first enkindled by a spark from heaven, and heaven will never suffer it to go out, but will burn to all eternity. So, a little bit of homework for me to you. I'd like you to start in the book of Acts and trace Paul and Timothy's relationship. Watch how it grows. And the love Paul has for Timothy, the, the love Timothy has for Paul, and they have the love for the Lord together. Just walk through those texts, through the missionary journeys, and see that develop. So, with all that, before I move on to our practical applications as time is quickly leaving me, I do want to mention one last quick item. We're going to go back about discernment. I want to talk about discernment for a quick moment. One aspect of discernment is recognizing that God gives us friends on different levels. God gives us friends on different levels. Jesus and his earthly ministry related in different ways to the crowds who heard him, the disciples who followed him, the twelve apostles who were with him with his daily companions, and Peter, James, and John as his closest friends. Jesus related to each of them differently. He loved them all. But his innermost close group of friends, he loved them on a different level than the crowds at the sea. Think of the levels of friendships as concentric circles. So just draw a bullseye. We're going to start from the outside. We're going to work into the middle. So those rings consist of mutual trust and knowledge. As we progress, those go up. So on the outside, the outermost circle are strangers. They're people you know little or nothing about. Move in one ring. Level one consists of acquaintances whom you have met but may share little with. Level two are allies whom you have learned to trust with some things that are important to you as you work toward commonly held goals. Level three represents companions with whom you share significant aspects of your life and work. These may be what we call best friends or BFFs. 
as the 90s kids would say, way back then. But then level four, the middle, the bullseye, that's consisting of confidence. Very close friends who are as one soul with you, with whom you share your deepest hopes and fears with. We don't share those on levels one and two. We share those if you're married with your spouse and very few others. And that's okay. It is okay we have friends at different levels in our lives. Quick warning. Don't assume that just because you go to church activities, they're your deepest, closest friends. To have biblical friendship, we need to go beyond mere fellowship. Fellowship is great, but deep biblical friendship is something more. And maybe I'm going to get tasked with a part three. Who knows? Though we must be patient in developing Christian friendships, we must not be passive. Can't be passive in this. Christians are called to do life together. Just as true, we're not sanctified in a bubble. We don't do life in a bubble. Contrary to the individualism that is glorified in Western culture, we need to realize that the Christian life has not been designed to live in solitude. Real Christianity is not a solitary life but one that's lived in community. And friendships are to be part of this experience in this community. So, with the few minutes I have left, I will do my best to get through the next four pages of my notes. But we're going to be on practical matters. So we looked at some high-level stuff. Now, what is the boots on the ground? What, what can we do to develop biblical friendships? How can we cultivate this? I have ten points. I'm going to do my best. Point number one. Talk together. We have a responsibility before God to extend our lives to others. You have something to give to others. And it's a stewardship from God to share it. Your life is meant to be shared. Build relationships through godly conversations. Sprinkle your conversations with the salty truth of God when talking about life. Put down your cell phones. Put down your tablets. Turn off the TV. Whatever you need to do. To look at one another in the eye and talk about the natural things of life and the spiritual things of life. Number two, listen together. The best friends, they listen very well. James 1.19 says, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. Listening is not mere passive silence. We must be active listeners. Pay attention to the person talking with your eyes and with your ears and with your mind. Be looking at them. Good active listening will allow you to ask good questions that will encourage the person to open up further and help us understand him or her better. Don't just listen for mere information, but listen to know the person. Try to understand his or her point of view. Open your heart and let your emotions Answer your friends. Rejoice with them that rejoice and weep with them that weep. You can do that by listening well. So we talk together, we listen together, and third, we serve together. Find ways to serve side by side and God honoring projects for the advancement of the kingdom. Serving Christ together builds and bonds friends like family. Christian fellowship carries an elevated nobility. When it rises above merely personal aims 
and seeks the good of humanity and the glory of Christ. Because serving lifts our eyes from the natural selfishness that is common, but we now turn our eyes up that we can both grow in our strengths, we can grow in our understanding of our weaknesses, one another, all as we strive to serve Christ in all that we do. So we talk, we listen, we serve, forth, we enjoy life together. It's probably one of my favorite. Friendship is more than a working partnership or a support system for the suffering. Friends multiply their joys by sharing them. One of the most basic ways that we can do this is by eating together. Don't over-spiritualize Christian friendship. Two of its most important tools are the fork and the spoon. As Christ's ministry shows, eating together communicates powerful messages of love and of social acceptance. When we invite others into our homes for a meal, the acceptance, vulnerability, and self-disclosure of hospitality deepens the joy even further. Friends become like family. Number five, we have to think together. God calls us not only to be one in activity and one in feeling, but also to be of one mind. That means discussing the truths of God is of utmost importance. This is how we sharpen each other, Proverbs 17. Talk about God, God's word, how God's glory appears in God's world. Help each other to love the Lord with all of your minds. Number six, we have to just be together. Never underestimate the power of personal presence. There's no substitute for time together. Because the personal bond of a shared life is amazing. For a friendship to go, it will cost us something. If we want biblical friendship, we must be willing to invest a resource that is limited and irreplaceable. We must invest our time. As a quick example of this, Life crisis. These authors highlight a story that I'm going to read to you. As an example of this, I was sitting torn by grief. Someone came and talked to me about God's dealings, of why it happened, of hope beyond the grave. He talked constantly. He said things I knew were true. I was unmoved, except to wish he'd go away. He finally did. And another came and sat beside me. He didn't talk. He didn't ask leading questions. He just sat beside me for an hour or more, listened when I said something, answered briefly, prayed simply, then left. I was moved. I was comforted. I hated to see him go. Spending time together. Number seven, showing trust. Have trust together. Trust is a first requisite for making a friend. A friend is a trusted confidant to whom I am mutually drawn as a companion and an ally, whose love for me is not dependent on my performance and whose influence draws me closer to God. Because of that trust, I have to practice discernment so you can learn to distinguish between betrayal and disappointment. Number eight, we have to pray together. When we worship God and offer up our prayers together, we find ourselves bond together with the cords of heavenly love. When someone asks for prayer, don't wait. Pray right then and there for them. And then when you get home, pray for them again when you're by yourself. The best friends pray for each other all the time. Number nine, repent together. Repent together. True friends are honest with each other. 
We all still sin. We all need correction. Will you be the kind of faithful friend who tells one another when the truth hurts? This is the test of a faithful friendship. Proverbs 27. Open rebuke is better than secret love. Faithful the, friend, the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Finally, number 10, because of our time, hope together. One of the blessings of Christian friendship is to encourage each other to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and the coming of his kingdom. No matter our personal circumstances, we all need to be reminded that this world is not our home, but we have a place in the Father's house. Hopes give us patience, perseverance, and joy. Our hope in Christ transcends all earthly friendships, and so friendships should point us to our ultimate hope. So, to wrap this up quickly, God works in the lives of His children through friendships to help them grow in grace and to stay true to Christ. In this world, which is no friend to grace, God has designed the Christian life to be a life together, in which believing friends aid one another and bear one another's burdens and pray for one another and encourage one another. True biblical friendship is an essential part of all believers' lives. Don't underestimate its importance. Seek Christ. Seek friendships that push you to seek Christ more. Lord, we come to you now. We thank you for this time. Lord, once again, do pray that this brief study on friendship has encouraged one another that we would seek out friendships that honor you. Help us to grow in our friendships. Help us to put ourselves out there to extend the hand of fellowship, to cultivate relationships. Lord, we thank you that you are a God of relationships and that you are the author and the perfecter of friendships. We praise you. We thank you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.